TED Audio Collective. So I'm doxxed. And I'm trash. Maybe that's the answer to cancel culture is that we're all trash. Yeah, I mean, we're all going to be canceled soon, so don't worry about it. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Hey, and welcome back to Conversations with People Who Hate Me the show that takes negative online interactions and turns them into offline conversations. I'm your host, Dylan Marin. Before we get into it, I want to let you know about two quick things. First, transcripts of every episode now live on our website, so you can go check them out at www.conversationswithpeoplewhohateme.com. And second, a few conversations this season came from the submission form. Have you gotten into an online fight with someone? Maybe someone said something mean to you, or maybe you said something kind of nasty to someone else, or maybe you just know of a really good story that could be fascinating for this show. If any of these apply, head on over to that same website, www.conversationswithpeoplewhohateme.com, and fill out a submission form. Who knows, we may give you a call and start working on an episode. Okay, business done. Now, let's get started. When I say cancel culture, what does that make you feel? Do you see it as the product of everyone being way too sensitive these days? Inarguable proof that there is a woke mob out to take away people's jobs for perceived mess-ups, jokes, and non-issues? Or do you think that it doesn't exist? That it's really just a shield some people use to avoid criticism, choosing to blame the imaginary boogeyman of cancel culture instead of just looking inward? Or maybe you have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about and you are so confused right now, and that's okay. Cancel culture is really challenging to talk about because it's incredibly hard to agree on one definition if we can agree that it even exists at all. Paraphrasing from Merriam-Webster, cancel culture is a collective withdrawal of support of a public figure based on their objectionable actions. But what counts as an objectionable action? And who gets to decide that? Does that withdrawal of support actually stick? And what I mean is, like, do people who are canceled actually lose anything? And sometimes, yeah, they do. Especially private citizens with less power whose misdeeds or perceived misdeeds suddenly brought them into the public eye. Sometimes it's just words. Like, it's just people saying that someone is canceled and that's that. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. And here is my take. I think cancel culture is an imprecise term that groups together three very real but different things. Mob mentality, constructive criticism, and unnecessary pylons. Can items on that list intersect? Totally. Do all three sometimes happen at the same time? Yeah, I think they do. So, isn't that cancel culture? Well, in my opinion, emphasis on my and emphasis on opinion, no. 
I think it's a combination of a lot of very, very complicated human dynamics all happening at the same time in the funhouse mirror of social media. Sometimes social media pylons, yes, even those that begin with noble and valid criticism, can get so vicious that we lose sight of the humanity and feelings of the people we're piling onto. And I also think that constructive criticism can be really hard to hear, especially online, so we too quickly dismiss it because we don't want to consider that maybe we did, in fact, mess up, and I've made that mistake myself. If you're familiar with this show at all, you know that I find it worthwhile to approach this on a human level, to get to know the full three-dimensional people involved in a moment of so-called cancellation. That means both the canceled and the canceller, not to absolve or condemn either of them, but simply to get to know their backstories, to see them as human. And that is exactly what I'm attempting to do today. Katie Herzog is a writer for The Stranger, and in the summer of 2017, she wrote a piece called The Detransitioners, which discussed the very rare occurrence of folks who come out as trans and then choose to detransition. Soon after its release, Katie received a lot of criticism, and some argued that her piece was harmful to the trans community and perpetuated transphobic ideas. The online response was swift. You might say she was canceled, or not. She does, after all, still have her job. But some on social media really made their thoughts known. One Twitter user wrote, don't know why I thought it was a good idea to read Katie Herzog's piece of shit transphobic article when I was having a great day, five question marks. Another called her a dirty turf, which is um, an acronym for trans exclusionary radical feminist. Someone ended their tweet with what a trash can. And nearly 3000 miles east of Katie, Late one night, a woman in Brooklyn joined this pylon, tweeting, I'm just trying to imagine a world where a detransition story is the journalistic hill to die on, but I can't. You're just trash. The woman who wrote that tweet, her name is Robin Canner, and you'll get to know her very soon. Katie and Robin had never met face to face until I introduced them to each other on stage in front of a live audience at a public taping of this podcast that you are about to listen to right now. I want you to accept them, to welcome them with open arms, with a lot of love. This takes a lot. So without further ado, meeting on stage for the very first time, please welcome Katie and Robin. Katie and Robin enter the stage from different sides, first gesturing hello to the audience, and then they hug. After their sweet little hug, they sit down in their onstage seats. Oh, this is like a very gay wardrobe we got going on. It's a very gay wardrobe. <laughs> we coordinated. Yeah, um, do we notice that Katie and I are matching? We are. Entirely on purpose. Yeah, entirely on purpose. Yeah. That's because um, I have a camera in your house. <laughs> yes, yeah, dox me. Um, so I'm doxed. Um, and I'm trash. Uh, and trash. And trash. And yeah. Yeah, I'm trash. Okay, great. Um, so great. Uh, that is it. We're done. Right. We're all trash. Maybe that's the answer to cancel culture is that we're all trash. Yeah, I mean, we're all going to be canceled soon, so don't yeah. worry about yeah. it. Yeah. Your time is coming. Your day Get will ready. come. Yeah. That's dark. That Black Mirror episode is coming. Um, there's a lot to get into. But what I want to start with first is 
As you know, on the podcast, I ask each of my guests to tell me about themselves one-on-one when I speak to them before we launch right into the conversation. And so I wanted to figure out how to adapt this into a visual format. So rather than just sitting here and me asking Robin about Robin, Katie about Katie, I instead went to go and visit them in each of their homes so you can get a sense of what they look like off stage on a weekend when they are not in front of an audience. Okay, I understand that this might be a little confusing. I can explain. At this moment in the live show, we are going to watch pre-recorded videos that show me visiting Katie and Robin in each of their homes. But clearly, I understand that you, listener right now, cannot see those videos. So instead, you are going to be hearing the audio of those videos, a live room of people watching those videos, and to make absolutely sure that you don't miss anything, my voiceover commentary to describe any of the visual elements that you can't hear. Does that make sense? If it doesn't, Stay with me. I promise it will very, very soon. So Katie's video is up first, and it opens with me parking my car on her street. You're going to see how bad I am at parallel parking. Okay. Not bad. Are you proud? Having successfully parallel parked, not to brag, I get out and I walk down this really cute tree-lined street in suburban Seattle, and I arrive at Katie's apartment, which is on the second floor of a large two-story mid-century house that's painted dark beige with yellow trim. She doesn't have a buzzer, so I call her to let me in. We are here. Hi, Hi, Dylan. Hey, look at you. How are you? Good, thanks for coming. I love your denim. Oh, why, thank you. Um, Okay, fancy plastic on your Oh, thank you. I rolled out the red carpet for you. Thank you. The plastic (laughs) plastic carpet. Yay, fancy home. Yeah, welcome to my home. Oh my God. Katie shows me into a spacious sunlit apartment, which opens onto a truly enormous kitchen. My New York brain does not know how to process this. Look at your, this is, a, this this is, is the a, biggest kitchen I've ever this seen. This is a Seattle mansion. So can you give us a tour? Sure. So this is um, where the magic happens. Okay. And by that I mean this, this is, is on TV crew. Yeah, yeah, this is where um, my girlfriend does the cooking. She made us some muffins today. Um, I arranged the fruit bowl that's oh my God. not plastic. Wow. No, looks like it might be, but yeah. This Oh, this is confirmed not plastic. Standard kitchen stuff. Yes. I uh, don't know what most of it is, but apparently it's required. So you're not the cook here. I'm not the cook. I'm the beneficiary of the the cooking. I'm actually the same I do the dishes. Like any good liberal, you Mm -hmm. have kombucha. Yeah, I also didn't drink that. This was me and the 15-year-old. Okay, just so you know, it is a pretty enormous and terrific-looking vat of kombucha. Katie and I make our way to a bookshelf in the corner of the room. Right. Okay, so is this the library? This is part of the library. Most of the books are uh, now stacked up in our bedroom because I was trying to make this place look cleaner. Oh, God. So um, this is this is a, a, an apartment performing for yeah, the Yeah, this is, it is normally the level of cleanliness here is like 10 out of 10 right now. There's, everything has been shoved into the bedroom. This is my contribution to the home. <laughs> a stack of New Yorkers yes. and some weed. Love. Yeah. Stack of New Yorkers and weed. So this I contribute too. Very hip and cool. And legal here. And legal here. In Perfectly legal. The state of Seattle. In, in, the, the, in the state of Washington. <laughs> <laughs> Seattle would like itself to be. In the state. state of Washington. Yeah. I'll keep that in so everyone can know yeah. that I'm dumb dumb. Um, okay, that sounds great. You want to take a seat? Sure. We settle into the couch in her living room cool. to chat. Here's the first question I always start with, but in only as many details as you're comfortable sharing on camera. Um, tell me about you. Hmm. All right. Um, <clears throat> I guess I'll get the basics out of the way first. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm 35 years old. My pronouns are she, her. I've never actually said that before. Oh, this is my first time. My oh, pronouns are she, her. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, I'm from North Carolina. I live in Seattle. I rollerblade, which is the dorkiest thing that I do, probably, maybe not. Um, or maybe the coolest, depending on what year you ask. After work in the afternoon, I like to walk up to a park with my girlfriend and we play catch. And there's oftentimes like a dad and a son out playing catch <laughs> with us, two mid-30s women yeah. doing our, you know, our birthright of playing softball. <laughs> yeah, yeah. you got to fulfill yeah. that, that edict, you know? Yeah. Um, I take a lot of weekend trips. Mm. I spend too much time on Twitter. I would love nothing more to live in a valley somewhere between a couple of mountains with no phone reception. And I could only listen to NPR and, and watch PBS, and I think I would be really happy for like 24 hours, and then I'd probably go crazy. But after I got over the, uh, over the detox period, mm -hmm. that would be my ideal life, would be to be offline. But it's impossible for my job. And you're a writer for The Stranger. I am the second most hated staff writer at The Stranger, Seattle's Alt Biweekly. So that's a verbatim line from your Twitter bio. Why did you say that? Well, for one, I think it's true. And also because I think it's funny. It just sort of makes me laugh, and it's a way of... Po There's probably something deep, more a deeper psychological reason, uh -huh. like uh, being self-deprecating to, uh -huh. to shield myself from, the, from, I don't know, the truth of not being liked, something like that. <laughs> If I were a psychologist, maybe I would say that. Or maybe it has something to do with my childhood. Um, but I get, like, lots of mean tweets about that thing. Well, I feel like this um, kind of leads into what we're here to talk about. In the summer of 2017, you wrote an article on detransitioning. Mm -hmm. Why did you write it? So... It's pretty simple. I thought it was just a really interesting story about human experiences. I've been in the queer community for, you know, all of my adult life, and I have a lot of trans friends, and I'd never met anybody who had detransitioned before. I mean, I wrote it mostly because I thought it was an interesting story, and I thought it was a story that needed to be told. And did you think that it would get this response that it did? I, I knew there was going to be a response. I didn't know how, how sort of heated it would get. But I did think that my sort of own identity would insulate me a little bit because I'm not transphobic. I'm not a conservative. I, I do believe in trans rights, and I believe in, mm -hmm. um, I believe in, you know, I believe that trans people should be able to use the bathroom they want, or the military. Mm -hmm. And I, and I thought that that would, I thought that that would insulate me, mm -hmm. but it didn't. So I ask this like feelings only, specifically feelings. But how did it feel to start getting the negative response? Stressful. It was, felt terrible. It was incredibly stressful. Mm. I couldn't sleep. I felt every time my phone would beep, I felt like I was going to throw up. Eventually, I just turned everything off and left town and, and sort of shut it off for a couple days. How has it affected your life now? Some ways that are concrete, like um, some friendships for sure ended, long-term friendships. Um, that was difficult. Mm -hmm. um, it was the first time I had pissed off my own people. I'd pissed off conservatives plenty. And, it, and that didn't have any effect. And when it comes from your own allies, the experience is totally different. Like, it, you feel attacked in this way that just feels much, much worse. You know, it has an effect. And I knew all of the precautions I had taken in this, to write this piece. 
I talked to the experts, I talked to trans people, I talked to de-trans people, I worked on it for months. It was every, you know, T was crossed and I was dotted, it had gone through multiple sensitivity reads and I knew that, I knew that the story was one that, sh that deserved to have been written. And for the first time, I saw, if my side can be wrong about me, what else are they wrong about? And this was all born out of this article? Yes. I think the response to this article, I think it, it changed me in a, um, in a very deep way. And it also, now I know that when something like this happens, when there's some sort of social media pylon, I also know not to believe the, the first story, the first reactions. I learned to wait and to do my own research and to read the thing that everybody is mad about or whatever, and not to assume that because there's a dog pile, the person at the bottom of it has done something to deserve it. You got a lot of tweets and a lot of feedback, comments, everything. Do you remember specifically getting Robin's tweet? No, not at all. But I did, when I looked Robin up on Twitter, I had muted her. So there had been some interaction at some point that I didn't want to hear. I think she tweeted something about me being trash. Um, so there are a lot of those tweets. I have a little pin that my girlfriend gave me that's a little trash bag. <laughs> wearing around when I'm feeling saucy. So you are about to meet Robin IRL for the first time. In fact, as I say these words right now, you're probably watching this, having already met. But how do you feel? I feel great about it. I, um, I think that... Robin and I probably have a lot in common. Um, I'm nervous about one thing, and are we gonna, when we're on stage or meeting for the first time, are we gonna shake hands or are we gonna hug? That's the thing that I keep wondering. I'm like, should, should we like work it out first? Um, so I'm nervous about that. I'm not nervous about, I don't think she's gonna be a scary monster. I'm more nervous about the audience, frankly, than I am about Robin. And Katie's video ends. Aww. Um, so that's Katie. Rather than launching again into the conversation, let's get to know Robin. And now Robin's video begins to play, which opens on me arriving to her Brooklyn apartment building, which is a pretty standard New York multi-occupant building, and I buzz upstairs. Robin opens her door. Welcome. Hi. Hi. How are you? And we hug. Good to see you. Um, we're a shoes off home. Hey, yeah, Hi, yeah, this yeah. is a camera. Welcome, welcome. Very exciting. Okay, shoes here. off. Thank you for having us. Of course. Oh my God. Welcome. This is great. Yes. Her apartment begins in this like deceptively narrow hallway, but then it opens up to this big hybrid living room kitchen area. Can you give us like a fancy tour? Sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm Shall we start? in the kitchen? Yeah, the kitchen. Well, it's weird. I have like a kitchen slash living room slash okay. work area. In yeah. New York, this. In this moment, the camera cuts to the floor and we see that the kitchen tile abruptly stops and meets the wood flooring that covers the rest of her apartment, which New Yorkers will absolutely agree counts as two different yes. rooms. That's the line. Is a good delineation. <laughs> yeah. This legally counts as a different room totally. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, here's the coffee machine. Heard of coffee, love yeah. it. Uh, you have yeah. Alexa. I have Alexa. Oh my 
my God. There are sentient robots in this home listening to us. Mm -hmm. Sorry about that. Can I just see what's in your fridge? Yeah, there's nothing in my fridge. Literally. Robin. Eggs. Like a tomato. You don't even have a light that goes on. No, it broke. <laughs> so my light broke like a year ago, but I've been okay. too like embarrassed to tell my landlord to like fix it. I'm embarrassed for you. Uh, no. As the tour continues, Robin and I take an exaggerated step from the tile of the kitchen to the wood floor of the living room because, you know, you gotta preserve that multi-room fantasy. Uh, now let's officially exit the kitchen, shall we? Great. We're here. <laughs> we have an art experience happening over yeah. here. I play guitar. I watch TV. Wow. And now so we're stepping into the room Once of the you hit office. The, the rug, you're basically working. This with. is a different room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, bike. Love a bike. Love a bike. Love a bike. Love this pink mm -hmm. touch. Cute. It's like gothic with a hint of high fans. Would you consider that the aesthetic yeah, of that's Robin? Yeah, that's my aesthetic. Fancy. Yeah, and then this is my bedroom. The first thing you see when you enter her bedroom is a sprawling fur blanket draped across her bed. Did you kill an animal for that? Uh, no, it's, it's, not, it's not an animal one. Okay, it's yeah. fake animal. It's a fake animal. I get to the doors of her closet, but I figure I should ask for permission first. Can we look? Uh, it's messy, it's gross, you don't want to see it. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. Now, this is like suddenly where we realize this isn't Queer Eye, where it's like, no, you don't want to <laughs> no, look. No, it's messy okay. and gross, you don't want to see it. And you accept that as an answer and you say, well, we're not. I'm queer and great. That's what you gotta queer know. Queer and great. Queer and great. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Tan <laughs> France. All right, shall we move into the chat? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, Just I as like I did with Katie, Robin and I settled down on her sofa. Uh, about me, that's such a difficult question. Well, I'm from Maine. Yeah. Um, I now live in Brooklyn. Love. I love books, I love music. Love. I am a writer and designer. Um, I did primarily design for like a decade, and then I hit 25 mm -hmm. and started reading books. And um, I realized that writing was like the greatest thing ever. And in the past, you've done a lot of trans activism. Yeah, when I, so I transitioned the first time in 2008, and I was in it. Like when the world wasn't in it, I was totally in it. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> I, I, that's sort of the best way to describe it. Like in mm. 2008, nobody was talking about being trans. It was yeah. like sort of this taboo thing. And I was like fucking in it. And um, yeah, I was in it until I would say like 2012, 13 was when I sort of questioned like, what we were really doing. Mm. Uh, what do you mean by that? I didn't know really where my voice Dude, in the conversation, that sounds super ego-driven, but that's kind of how I fit, like, in that moment. So this is a good segue for what we're here to talk about, because on July 7th of 2017... Okay, so right when I bring up this date, Robin buries her head in her hood sheepishly. You tweeted, at Kitty Perzog, Katie's handle, I'm trying to imagine a world where a detransition story is the journalistic hill to die on, but I can't... And then you added the kicker, you're just trash. Oh. How does that feel to hear? It's just embarrassing. Like, when I think about my life at that time, I was in a sad, angry state. And I remember tweeting that. I was on my bed. It was midnight. And I was just kind of drunk and alone. And I saw this piece on Twitter, and then somebody else was yelling about it. So I decided, you know, I'll just yell at it. So I opened up the article, literally... <laughs> read maybe three sentences of the thing. Like, I didn't really read it. And 
I closed the thing. I went back to Twitter. I was like, you're trash. Um, the best thing about that tweet, though, is I misspelled journalistic. <laughs> like, I didn't even get it right. <laughs> so it sort of sets where I was at at the time as a human being. Um, my life was messy then, and I was... I was angry about the way people were talking about being trans online. You just said messy. What do you mean by messy? Uh, I'm an addict and alcoholic. And uh, at the time, I was deep in it. Like, I was trying my best to be alive and the most part removed from myself at the time. It was just sort of like a really sad state. And... For me, there is this anxiety of yelling on the internet. You just get it. Like, if you yell at somebody, your heart rate will pump up. And if you're yelling online all the time, like I was at that time, couldn't sleep without drinking. I was just mad at people all the fucking time. Mm -hmm. And when I stopped doing that, uh, and I, you know, got help, went to AA and stuff, um, I was able to sleep at night. I just thought it was so much nicer. Mm. I wouldn't dry, like, with no help for, like, two weeks. I basically stayed in this apartment with, like, my shades down, played a bunch of video games. Mm -hmm. uh, because, honestly, like, if I was playing video games, my hands would stop shaking, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I couldn't think about anything else. Mm -hmm. So I did that for, like, the first two weeks. And that had no longevity to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> I went to, yeah, I went to an AA meeting. Um, and... The people were great. So I immediately, not immediately, probably two weeks into AA, got a sponsor. And she gave me the best sentence of my entire life. The, the one sentence that has saved my entire life. And that is, I have resentment at, insert whatever you want, because I fear that something will happen. Right? Huh. So I have resentment at the internet because I fear that if I stop yelling, they won't like me. I have resentment at myself because I fear that yelling at people online is the only way I get people to notice me. That sentence has straight up saved my life. What does your sober life look like now? It's given me the ability to listen when somebody actually says something, as opposed to waiting for the thing that I want to say next. It's given me the ability to smile. Like, I never smiled. I, like, I'd watch comedy and be like, well, I could do that better. I don't know shit about, you know, I don't know anything about that world. And it gave me the, 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 the joy of life. Um, gave me mornings back without a hangover. It gave me the ability to, um, if I disagree with somebody, just understand that they're a human being and obviously I'll disagree with somebody. It just gave me my life back. So you're gonna meet Katie live? and talk to her in person for the first time. How do you feel? Great. Um, I, I don't know her. I'm sure she's rad. Um, I, I, my guess is while this is playing, I'm sitting right next to her. So uh, it's going to be cool. Sorry, Katie. And with that, Robin's video ends apologizing to Katie. I forgive you. Stay right there. We'll be right back. Before we continue, I just want to say thanks for being here. 
Also, you can be on this show too. Has someone said something negative about you online, or maybe you've said something negative about someone else? Either way, after this episode is over, go to www.conversationswithpeoplewhohateme.com where you can fill out a guest form. And if you don't want to be on this show, that is totally cool. I appreciate you just the same. Maybe consider telling a friend about this show. Word of mouth has brought this podcast around the world, so your recommendation goes a long way. All right, let's get back to the conversation. How do you guys feel? I feel good. And also, I want to say, mornings, aren't they incredible? They're so good. It's They're crazy. so lovely. It's crazy. Yeah, so welcome to, welcome to morning. Thank yeah. you. I'm glad that you went through this process and came out the other side. Yeah. So how are you feeling? I feel really good. Um, I want to dig a little more into it. I don't know that I've necessarily written a tweet like that, but I've certainly liked them. I've certainly plus one them. And I think it's this dangerous thing where you really want to just be on the right side of history and you definitely want to feel like if I'm seeing a person as transphobic, then fuck that person. I don't know what they did, right. but fuck transphobia. Yeah, and I think that's a noble impulse. The yeah. problem is like, like as Robin mentioned, she read three, three the first three sentences of the piece. Mm-hmm. Great so, three sentences. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it becomes oftentimes with these pileups, pylons happen, it becomes everybody resorts to ad hominem attacks. It doesn't become about the piece itself or the content at all. It becomes about the writer or the artist or whoever it is, the actor. But just so kind of people can know, what does that feel like? Like oh, what, it, what, what's the effect? It fucking sucks. Yeah. Um, so Seattle's a really small town and the queer community there is obviously smaller than the rest of it. Um, and I got, I got very quickly pushed out of the community that I lived in. Um, and that hasn't, that hasn't changed actually. It hasn't, there hasn't been like a springing back. Like I don't go to queer spaces anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, people that I know ignore me on a regular basis. There was, after the piece came out, people were actually burning stacks of the paper and sending me video. So I've actually been, my book has been burned. (laughs) Um, I don't think many people can say that, so I'm proud. Um, There were flyers up in my neighborhood calling me and my boss is transphobic. So it was, it it did have, so it was online, but it was also offline in this way that affected me, you know, in terms of where I got coffee and shit like that. It was Mm. very real. So Robin, you were talking about sobriety and talking about how you were in this pattern of kind of jumping online to kind of, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Was it shouting into the void? Yeah, sure. That works. Okay, great. Um, Was this a regular thing for you? For sure. It kind of depends how far we go back. And let's say we'll go far back for a second. Let's go. The way that I was sort of raised on the internet Mm -hmm. was... If you are marginalized, I'm going to put that in quotes, then you're insignificant. Your voice will be less than, right? And I took that to heart and basically used my voice to be as loud as humanly possible. There was no conversation. There was no in-depth anything. It was just me sort of frustrated and without any healthy coping mechanisms, without conversations with people in real life, without just sort of friends to really bounce things off of, I ended up yelling. And on the internet, everything sort of has an economy. Like, yelling is an economy, and if you yell the loudest, it's like you get the most money. Like, you're the capitalist of yelling. And I wanted to be that fucking capitalist. I wanted to be so high on yelling, because I was so used to being sort of invisible throughout my life. And I saw it kind of work, like yelling on the internet. I saw it work. Um, I saw people build brands off it. I saw those people become brands, have HBO shows. Like I just saw this whole world blow up. And 
it was interesting because I was a part of this culture of yell to get the clicks, yell to get the engagement, yell to be affirmed in your identity. So there's no checks and balances with that. You're just yelling, right? And that's sort of what I was doing. So it was almost like the drunker I got, like success rate in that metric was very high. <laughs> well, let's kind of dig into the gamification of it, sure. right? Because I think there is something fucking intoxicating totally. when you see a tweet go viral. right? But there's something about when you craft a tweet that is a, just the right amount of snarky and the right amount of funny and you just see it take off, there is a fucking dopamine rush. Sure. And you equate that with being correct. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's an, entirely how it goes. Dude, I would yell if the Chicago Bulls lost a game. Like, I'm a really big Bulls fan. A big sports audience here, yeah. as you can tell. If anybody wants to say after that, talking about the Chicago Bulls, I'm yeah. super down. That tracked well here. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, I can't even... <laughs> I can't even remember the amount of times I shit on LeBron James, right? Mm -hmm. Like he, That's a human being who's done yeah. very good work in this life. And uh, I mean, I, I, I dragged him. Um, do you guys have any questions for each other? So the sobriety came first, I assume. So I'm curious about... To the, not being a dick? Yes, to yeah. not being a dick. Yeah. Um, that's the, that's the, the 13th step? Is that, <laughs> yeah. um, so yeah. I'm, I'm curious, though. How did that how did that play out for you? So did you have a realization like I've been an asshole on the internet or was it more gradual or It wasn't the internet, it was my entire life. Okay. Uh, for me personally, I slowly picked things up. Like we're talking I got sober in July of last year, which is like 9 months next week. Um please yeah, clap. That's yeah. amazing. Um, it it totally wasn't like one day I was like oh, I'm a dick, now I'm a better person. That didn't happen. It was, I subtly watched and read and consumed a bunch of different things from my childhood and my teen years and everything. It just about when I stopped being a human, right? So I watched Hook with like Robin Williams, Julia Roberts, like... Rufio. It was, it was incredible. I mean, Dustin Hoffman, he's unreal. And the film plot of this is really like this guy sort of caught up in work, didn't really know what he was doing, was kind of a jerk to his child, um, gets taken away by Tinkerbell because he's just sort of lost himself. And you just see Tinkerbell and sort of the Lost Boys be like, you have to have a happy thought. Like, just one and you can fly. Like, that's all you got to do, right? And I was thinking about it. I was like, what's my happy thought? And I couldn't come up with anything. And I was like, well, that's sad. And a big part of my drinking came from my father passing away at a very early age. And dude, I just sort of looked at that film and I was like, I just had this like, you idiot moment, your, your higher power, your happy thoughts, your father, just like enjoy that. And then once I settled with that, then I had a total change of thought. I really had the moment where I was like, would my dad like what I'm doing right now? I get that all the time, but it's when I go home and I tell my girlfriend about what I've been doing on Twitter all the day. Does never, it never, ever goes well. Yeah, never, yeah, ever. Yeah. Like, I think I'll tweet something that I think is really hilarious and I'll show her and she's just like, you are a fucking asshole. <laughs> I'm like, you don't get it. Emotional it's funny. support. Snark is funny. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Try not to call people trash. I prefer the term garbage. Garbage. Yeah. Okay. I don't call. I try not to. Like, What's the difference? Uh, three yeah. letters. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Semantics. Got yeah. it. Yeah. Friends, there's a big twist in this story. You feeling okay? I feel great. You feeling okay? I took beta blockers. I'm fine. Yeah. Yes, honey. <laughs> I love that healthy um, person. 
<laughs> yes, beta blockers. Um, so as we know, Robin logged on to twitter.com to call Katie Trash in the summer of 2017. And then in February, Esquire put out this cover for an American boy. All right, it is voiceover Dylan coming back in to synthesize this a little more clearly. So yes, Esquire indeed did run a cover story article for their March issue, published on February 12th, 2019, entitled The Life of an American Boy at 17, which profiles a young, straight white man from the American Midwest who is on the precipice of adulthood. Now at the time, this young man leaned conservative, maybe he still does, I don't know, but many critiqued Esquire for electing to use a white, conservative-leaning 17-year-old to represent Present the American Boy. Now, for context, the magazine did announce that this was the first in a series of many profiles of many different types of young men, but regardless, the backlash was loud, aimed both at Esquire and the teenager himself. And I'll hand it back to Live Show Dylan to take it from here. This was met with a ton of animosity online because this was right during Black History Month, and I don't know that there was a huge reading the room moment that happened. <laughs> Um, so then Robin wrote a piece for the New York Times called Esquire's Coverboy and Our Culture of Shame, the subheading, I'm a trans woman living in Brooklyn and I have tremendous empathy for the conservative teen in Wisconsin. Could you give um, just a kind of brief description of why you wrote this and why you empathized with him? Sure. So there's three parts to this piece. Uh, the first is how uh, growing up in Maine, I grew up in a town called Fairfield. I campaigned for George W. Bush. And I wrote about the experience to talk about this person. He's 17 years old. He is uh, in Wisconsin, conservative household. And for me, I saw that and thought to myself, well, I grew up in a conservative town and it could have easily been me. And when I looked at myself in 2019 versus 2005 when I campaigned, 2004, whatever, I realize that that kind of just sucks for him. He should really have a moment to, to grow up and change. And if his name is sort of attached to the controversy that conspired on Twitter, he never really gets the chance to grow up. And I thought that was kind of sad. And then this was the response. Lots of memes. What you can't see is that at this point, a flurry of tweets appear on the screen behind us with the names of the authors blurred, of course. And these tweets represent just a small portion of the pushback that Robin received for writing that op-ed that empathized with the 17-year-old in the Esquire cover story. Here I am reading some of those tweets aloud. Your opinions are shit. They're fucking shit. This piece is awful. This is so embarrassing. The caucasity. Um, the audacity of this caucasity. Ugh. Turns out trans women can be mouthpieces for white supremacy too. Why do you keep publishing this shit every time? And shut up, idiot. L-M-A-O. So... Just what I asked Katie earlier, how did it feel? Uh, I knew I knew it was coming. I did not know the amount it was going to happen. And there was this really funny moment uh, on the evening it published where I just kind of thought like, well, I guess I'm getting my medicine now. Like I almost kind of deserve it in a little way. Katie, how does it feel to see that the person who called you trash and jumped on the pylon is now at the bottom of a pylon themselves. 
I say this with absolute love. It feels fucking great. And, and I say this, I'm, and I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm not kidding. I say this because I actually think that being at the bottom of a pylon is really good for people. Like for me now, because this happened to me, I no longer look at arguments based on the person making them. So I, I, I judge arguments for themselves. I don't say like, this person is good and this person is bad and therefore I side with this person. Now I look at the argument themselves, the argument itself, which is, I've never done that before. I've always been a sort of knee-jerk progressive and this hasn't changed my politics at all, but it's made me engage much more deeply with arguments. It's made me much more open. Um, I, it's changed the media that I consume. I'm, fr I'm friends with conservatives now, not like real friends, but Twitter friends. <laughs> this never would have happened, never would have happened if I hadn't been piled on. And it's actually, a, it's, I feel wiser, I feel smarter. I'm invited to way fewer weddings, but I don't like weddings anyway. Um, so I, I think that it can be a, a, real, a real opportunity for growth, and I see Robin going through that, and so I think it's a great thing. I mean, it sucks, it sucks to be in pain, but good things can come from pain, and so I want it to happen to every fucking person in this room. <laughs> I also want to kind of confess something as someone who watched this happen. When you log on, this fully changes your perception of someone. And I've started thinking about pylons as bedbugs of the mind because it's that kind of thing where you they can be gone and you still feel that it's there. You can be walking in the street and you're afraid like that person fucking hates me, that person thinks I'm trash, and they're like, I don't know who the fuck you are, <laughs> you know? Um, and the reason I say is that it's bedbugs of the mind, and I want to be super clear. I, I don't mean the people. I mean the ideas, the kind of th this, this thing that seeps into us. I read the Times op-ed piece right when it hit. I messaged her right away, and I was like, I love this article. I love this piece. And then I started seeing the response. I started seeing people who I follow, who I respect, who don't even know you, who don't even follow you. And I was like, oh, fuck, maybe this article is really bad. And I had read it, and I had formed an opinion on it, and it changed my perception of the article. And I hate that. I hate that. I hate that I log on to Twitter to see what I think. I'm, but that that's okay. Like I think that's okay, though, because there are many times I've read things wrong. And well, there is an information that passes, and no, I think that's okay. I, I don't think so because you were speaking to the exact themes I tackle in this podcast. So I'm sure. just saying, like, yeah, this yeah. is something I know. I knew what I was saying when I messaged you. I knew that I liked it, but that I was like, oh, maybe I hated it, and maybe Robin is bad, right? right. I was able to scale that certified asshole. Down. It's okay, certified asshole. I just mean like, I was like, oh yeah, maybe like this is white supremacy, you know, like it's, it's, and I feel like a somewhat free thinking person and that's happening to me. Um, My favorite moment of this entire experience was uh, a, a close friend sent me a very long text hoping that I was okay because I had seen everything. It was very sweet and we had a nice little conversation and I went to bed and I woke up the next morning and they had just unfollowed me. And oh I was God. like, word? Like, it's, it's like yeah. that? Like, New York media is really going to be that cold to me? Yes. And, I, and, I, and I, I let it go. But, I mean, the funny thing is, is I just offered them a job, so who cares? 
Um, did, and did that happen to you? Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. It still happens to me. I mean, so I had written for years, I wrote about climate change and I pissed off the right all the time. And that never affected me in any sort of emotional way. It didn't bother me. It was no big deal because I would get, you know, emails from people calling me a, a libtard fuck stick or whatever. Um, but when this pylon comes from your ideological allies, when it comes from your friends, it's a very different experience when it comes from people you don't like or people you don't agree with. And I still get that. I get a probably, I would say that like 60% of my hate mail comes from conservatives. And which I think is like a pretty good balance. I think I'm the center. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so in that hate mail, like I don't even, it doesn't bother me. It's funny. It's, and it's like mostly spelled wrong, um, which is also Sorry. funny. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that, so that hate mail, like it's just, it, it's funny. But if like, if I get something from somebody who I know is my ideological ally, it makes you think for sure, but it also hurts in a different way. I think one thing that's tough for me in this and 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 I think the real loss on the internet is constructive criticism, which is that we don't get constructive criticism on the internet anymore because we have no way of knowing how to parse through it. You know, so were you able to engage with constructive criticism on either of your pieces? I wasn't in the moment. In the moment it was like I had to get away. Um, later, yeah, and, and there, were, there, were, there definitely are good faith criticisms of my piece, and some people made those, and I appreciated them, but in the moment, like, you're, a tide of shit is coming for you, and, like, I just couldn't handle, like, all of that got lost in the, you know, in the sort of the tsunami of shit. Yeah, I got a lot of hate from my piece. I got no messages on Facebook. I got no Instagram messages. I got no emails. I got no phone calls. What I got is very specific, very circular hate on Twitter. And if you're a person receiving that, yeah, I can engage in the constructive criticism because I can deconstruct what those tweets mean and I can pick out the points that I think are important and relevant to pick up on. But whether that medium can help us be more human is something that is still up to debate for me. So as we close out this conversation, what is your fantasy remodel? It doesn't have to be the whole internet. It's just like, what is one element that you want to bring to it that you think could, could change it a little? I think about how words can be walls very quickly. And if there's one thing I can change about the internet, it wouldn't be to change the design of it. It would be to change the language of it. I think there should be a rule that you have to read the article before you comment on it. <laughs> Number one. I also think that there's, what the internet has done, it, it's, it's made us more tribal. And we're in a tribal moment right now because of politics all over the world anyway. And there are these things that we do to, uh, to, to sort of display our, our identities. You know, you might put a rainbow flag in your Twitter bio, or you might put a, a red rose or a black, or a red X, which says something. I'm canceled. I, yeah. <laughs> I think those are bad. Yeah. Because I want people to stop judging each other based on their particular identity and actually engage with each other based on who they are and their ideas. Uh, Twitter is not going to hire me and, and make them take away <laughs> the emojis in the bio. But I can send I think, an email. Yeah, thank you. But I think that if we related to each other as human beings, as individuals, as opposed to representatives of a group that we sort of have stereotypes in our head that this person is this because they are this, it's toxic and it's not actually how real life works. We are individuals and our various identities don't actually define who we are entirely. And I, I want people to engage with each other as human beings. 
Yeah. And also read the fucking article. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, well, final thing is closing thoughts. Um, how do you feel? Anything you want to share? The beta blockers are going to run off any minute, so <laughs> I got to get off stage. But okay. I feel great. This has been really fun. Okay, great. Uh, I feel I feel good. I want to say a huge thank you to both of you for being willing to do this. I think this takes, yeah. Um, thank you, guys. This episode of Conversations with People Who Hate Me was recorded live on April 10th, 2019 at Littlefield in Brooklyn, New York. The home visits were filmed and recorded by Dustin Flannery McCoy. The recording of the live show itself was produced by Ben Altarescu and audio recorded by Alan Kudan. Very special thanks to the entire Littlefield staff, Jana Krein, Shalewa Sharp, Michael Grinspan, and the whole team at ICM, Seth Horowitz, Jason Sudeikis, Scott Landsman, and Lindsay Ryan at MLM, my dad who came with me to rent the chairs so that Katie and Robin and I could have something comfy to sit on for the recording and he returned them for me the next day. Thank you, Dad, I love you. And finally, you know how I said that Katie and Robin were meeting live on stage for the very first time? Well, I was able to pull off that stunt because of the crucial help of my friend Eden Wall, who carefully managed the considerably small backstage area to make sure that they never met before the show began. Eden, thank you, it went off without a hitch. Conversations with People Who Hate Me is a production of Night Vale Presents. Vincent Cascione is the sound engineer and mixer. Christy Gressman is the executive producer. Thrilled to say this for the very first time. Emily Newman and Mark Stoll are the associate producers. The theme song is These Dark Times by Caged Animals. The logo was designed by Philip Blackowl with a photo by Mindy Tucker. And this podcast was created, produced, and hosted by me, Dylan Marin. Thank you, as always, to the Nightville Presents Director of Marketing, Adam Cecil, and our publicist, Megan Larson. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Until then, remember, there is a human on the other side of the screen. Dark times. Make it through these dark times.